God, we thank you so much for how you work in our lives as you did, as we see with Karen and, and as we see with Alapai and as we can all testify to how you work in our lives. And God, continue to do that in our hearts today. God, continue to move upon us with your love, your, your, your grace, Lord, for we're not worthy, God. We have failed you so many times, yet we're here, God, because we're hungry for you, God. We're here because, Lord, we want more of you in our lives and we want to live for you in a better way. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless your word this morning. Anoint it with your Holy Spirit. Transform us today, God, and call us to the life, to the way of life, the manner of living and the attitudes and the heart that you want us to have. Lord, give us your eyes to see each other in the way you see us, Lord. Lord, thank you for this time. We lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this incident where a man falls in a ditch. Soon walks by the realist, and he says, that is a ditch. The optimist walks by. He comes by and says, things will get better. The pessimist comes by and says, things will get worse. The psychiatrist sees this and says, you only think it's a ditch. Then comes a reporter and says, I'll pay you an exclusive about life in a ditch. The TV preacher comes by and says, give and you'll be freed from the ditch. <laughs> the city official comes by and says, where's the permit for the ditch? The IRS agent shows up and asks, have you paid your taxes for the ditch? But finally, someone comes and reaches in saying, give me your hand and I will help you out of the ditch. What is his name? Jesus. Jesus, right? Jesus was the only one who looked at the man with compassion. Well, as we return to our study here in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul explains to the believers here, the Corinthian believers, why he didn't stop by and what to do with this repentant man in the church and how to share the gospel. And it's all under one heart. It's all under one thing. And that is with the eyes of compassion. And that's the name or the title of our message this morning, The Eyes of Compassion. The eyes of compassion. We're going to be studying 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the whole chapter from verse 1 to 17 this morning. This morning our outline is this. Number one, love for the church. Number two, love for the sinner. And number three, love for the lost. Let's begin here now. The eyes of compassion. Number one in our outline, love for the church. Love for the church. We're going to be uh, beginning here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Take a look with me here now. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. We'll stop right there. We begin, Paul is writing here, the apostle, and he says, but I determined this. Well, Paul, what did you determine? What? What was that? Well, he determined that he would not come to visit the Corinthian church again in a manner in sorrow. That is, he doesn't want to come again to confront their sin again. Now listen to how the English Standard Version puts 
verse 1. It puts it this way. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit with you. Paul, he did not want to make his next visit, the next face-to-face with them, to be like the first visit. Now, last time we learned how Paul was to visit the Corinthian believers this second time, but he decided, and we saw this in 2 Corinthians one twenty-three. he decided to spare them, to spare you. He did not want to have their time together to be another time of this heavy exhortation going on. You see, on the first visit, Paul had to confront the believers of their sin, of their pride, of their selfishness, their self-focus, their worldliness, and their division. They were divisive toward one another. And it's basically everything he had written already in 1 Corinthians, in the book of 1 Corinthians that we had just studied. So nothing had changed. Paul knew that, hey, you know, this another face-to-face would only aggravate their flesh and emotions, and especially because they still had not repented. And so we, we mentioned a lot of that. We looked at a lot of that last time. So Paul explains why he didn't come a second time. He didn't want to have to deal with the same problem again. Better, a better idea, a better thing was to wait and let God continue to work on their hearts. So Paul goes on here in verse 2. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? In other words, the, the words of discipline that Paul gave them, they haven't been dealt with. So a second visit would just be another time to be sorrowful again. It would be painful again. But Paul's saying our next meeting should be something that makes us glad. It should be a joyful time. So then verse 3, Paul says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So rather than coming again, Paul thought it best to send a letter. That's why he wrote this very thing. That very thing is this letter that he wrote. Now, this is another letter he wrote. He wrote this between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in what we're studying here today. Commentators call this second letter, this middle letter, the severe letter. It was a severe one. Paul wrote very sternly, and we're going to see that later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So it was written in this way. It was written straight to him so, so that, you know, the letter would take care of more of what Paul was wanting to say. So he wrote that letter so their next meeting would not be in sorrow, but as it ought to be in joy. And that's what he's saying in verse 3. And the confidence, he says, having confidence, his confidence is that they will do the right thing that they will both be filled with joy again when they see each other again. So, Paul sent the serious letter instead. God had him write that. God had him, led him in doing that. For that was the best way to bring them, bring joy to both of them. John MacArthur wrote, They could not have mutual joy as long as the Corinthians continued in sin. Makes sense here, right? Well, then verse 4, Paul writes, For out of the 
out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Now, it, it was not easy for Paul to write this severe letter. It came out of much affliction and anguish of heart. In other words, it was, it was hard. It was really hard for him to write this. He wrote it with a heavy heart, with many tears. Someone said that Paul didn't write with ink. He wrote with his tears. And that's what he's saying here. He wrote not to grieve them. That, that wasn't the, the purpose of the reason. It was not to crush them with his principles. And, and it wasn't even to choke them with some retaliatory pain. Which sometimes we do. He wrote out of abundant love for them. Paul, yes, was straight with them, but he cared for their spiritual well-being. So even though the Corinthians might think Paul is against them, maybe they thought, well, he didn't show up because he doesn't like us. No, he, he, he still, he still was there for them. And he confronted sin because of, their, of a deep love for them. That, that, was, that was his heart here. He, he still wanted to, to, to make sure that they were doing right. He cared for their spiritual well-being because he had a deep love for them. Proverbs 27, 6, the beginning says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Paul here was telling them it was love for the church that drove him to not come and just write a letter to, and, and just write a letter to fiercely confront their sin. And that's our point here. It was love for the church that drove Paul to not come and just write a letter to fiercely confront their sin. He cared for them enough to confront them with their sin. But he had compassion on them that he didn't want to stir up more fleshly emotions. So the best thing was to write this letter. He had both things going on there. You know, kids sometimes hear their parents say during discipline, right? This hurts me more than it hurts you. And you know, as kids, we're like, yeah, right. That's just a lame excuse. Just a lame excuse there. Yeah. No, it really does hurt. Now, when you become a parent, you begin to understand what that means, right? Because you have compassion for your child. But at the same time, you need to do what you need to do to confront wrong behavior. And you do find, you do find it, it's painful to administer discipline. But sometimes parents, well, we become overwhelmed with those feelings of compassion. We go the way of the world and pull back on any discipline. But then some parents go completely the opposite way. With no compassion at all, you come down hard, right? You're focusing on the principles and not the person. You're focusing on, on not how to help, but how to stamp out the evil in their little lives. I said that with emphasis there. But think about Paul here. What balanced his principle was the compassion. 
That's why he decided not to stop a second time. He could have. He would have been in his right to stop there, to confront them again, to wonder why aren't you obeying the Lord? Why are you still in sin? But the Lord had a better plan because with compassion, he balanced the principle by not going there with compassion. He still wrote the letter, but he allowed God to use that letter while he was away to speak to their hearts. Paul, for Paul, the balance and principle was the compassion. You know, may God give us balance daily in our situation. Let me ask you, are you prone to be heavy, right? The heavy one. The, the one that, you, hey, you, you better do this and come down heavy. Watch out that you don't lack compassion for the person. I mean, Paul held to the truth, right? He wrote that severe letter, but he also hurt for them. He also felt their pain and suffering as they were not walking in sin and not with the Lord. He had compassion for their spiritual condition. Someone said, compassion is your pain in my heart. I like that. Let me ask you, are you prone to be led by emotion? Watch out for compromise there. Because your feelings can outweigh the principle. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, we're going to see this later. The first part, Paul had actually wrote, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. That's the goal. In this balance of principle and compassion, that's the goal. You hold your ground, so it leads to change. You don't give in just because it makes you feel better. Oh, no, I can't do that. Oh, because of your pain. No, you look to the goal of what the principle is to do. It's a tough balance. But we're not to force the issue. And sometimes, I think in our flesh, we do. Sometimes, in, in our, even in our emotional state, those are the heavies we get. Oh, yeah, this is, this is right. You're wrong. And we get all into this emotion and heavy about it. Don't force the issue. On the other side, sometimes, oh, 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 oh no, I cannot. Oh, no, I don't want to inflict pain or suffering on someone else. No. And then we lay it to lie their spiritual detriment. So tough balance. But don't force the issue. Let God lead you. Let God work it out. Whatever your situation, be led by the Spirit, not your flesh. And it's hard in those situations. But let me tell you, if you follow the Lord, God will work it out. I heard this interesting analogy about our kids. They wrote this. Children are like dogs. Teenagers are like cats. Dogs are loyal and affectionate. Then around age 13, your adoring little puppy turns into a cat. When you call them, they look amazed and wonder, who died and made you emperor? Instead of dogging your steps like before, they're elusive. You only see them when they need food or money. And you, not realizing your puppy is now a cat, you think something is desperately wrong. 
They seem so antisocial, so distant. They don't come to family outings anymore. And since you're the one who raised it, taught it, taught it to fetch, spay, and spit on command, I like this, you double down your efforts to make your pet behave. But it's a cat now. <laughs> we do that, don't we? we what? Come here. <laughs> well, they went on to say, word of advice, you need to learn to be a cat owner. Put a dish of food near their door and leave them alone. <laughs> Eventually, they will come to you seeking a nice, warm, comfortable lap. And in years to come, they will become your dog again. <laughs> Don't you love that? If you're a parent of teenagers, you understand. <laughs> you totally understand that. It's a tough balance. Being a parent, raising your kids. It's a tough balance in those situations. God wants us to hold to our principles and to show compassion. Tell you, so many times I failed that. I, I, I went to one side or the other, or the other side or the other. I swung both ways. But Paul here, hey, my love for the church that I did not have, but I still wrote this serious letter to these guys as well. Well, let's go on here. Number two, love for the sinner. Love for the sinner. These eyes of compassion, they hold a love for the church. And number two, love for the sinner. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Verse 6. This punishment, which is inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Okay, on the subject of compassion, Paul goes on concerning a man who has caused grief. Caused some grief. Caused some trouble. Caused some pain. Though, Paul says, he has not really hurt me so much as he has all of you. And who is he talking about? The church there in Corinth. So with this guy, Paul asked the Corinthian believers, do not be too severe at the end of verse 5. In other words, don't take it to, to the extreme here in the discipline that you've done to him. What you've done already, Paul saying, it's sufficient. It's sufficient for such a man. It's enough now. It's all right. Paul asked the Corinthian believers to conclude the discipline on this sinner who has repented. Now, the, the question is, who is this guy? What did he do? What did the Corinthian church do in discipline? Now, some of the commentators believe this man had listened to the false teachers and, and publicly attacked Paul when he came to visit that first time. That they, they, he, this man listened to them, began to go with, with, with these guys, and he attacked Paul's credibility as an apostle. But I don't know if I really feel that. I mean, it could be. Paul said, hey, this guy didn't grieve me. I'm okay, you know, with him. I'm all right. For me, I tend to believe in what other commentators say, that this man is the same man in 1 Corinthians 5 who is not only living together with a woman, but that woman he was sleeping with was technically his stepmother. Do you remember that back in 1 Corinthians 5? There was this sin going on there. Sins, I should say. Not just living together, but he was 
committing incest, so to speak, with his stepmother. Well, Paul instructed the Corinthian church to, to bring discipline on him in 1 Corinthians 5 to, to deal with this situation. And we went over this back then. It was as lay, basically they, they, the idea was to do what Jesus had laid out in Matthew uh, 18, 19, right, about talk to him privately, and if they don't repent, talk to him with, with one or two others, and if they don't repent, then you take it before the church leadership, and they still not turn from the sin, the last thing is to disfellowship them and not allow them back into the church. And that was the final step, and, but it, was all, it wasn't just to get rid of him, but it was a step of restoration. It was a step to get, wake him up, to get his attention, to, to let him out, and to let him see how much he needs the church to wake him up so he would repent. Well, it seems as though here the church discipline had gone to step number four. But it was then the man repented and turned from his sin. So Paul saying it's now time to restore this individual back into the body. It's time now that, that the discipline be over, but punishment was sufficient. So then he goes on in verse 7, so that on the contrary, when he says on the contrary, in, in other words, rather than keep disciplining him, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Verse 8, therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. So Paul calls on the Corinthian church to now forgive the guy, to comfort this guy. Why is that? Well, it seems that they still have not allowed him back into the fellowship. He had repented. He had turned his life around. Perhaps he moved out. Perhaps he's, he's getting his life right with the Lord. But he's still not allowed back into the church. Note this. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul got on the Corinthian church because they were not dealing with it. They were allowing this in the church. And, ah, yeah, whatever. Right? Maybe they were too compassionate, too, too much. But mainly when we study that, they, 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 didn't, they weren't really caring about God's command. They allowed it. Well, they finally obeyed. They finally got their act together, the church, and they dealt with the problem, and eventually he had to leave. Perhaps it was in this severe letter, the one we don't have, that Paul really got down to them, and they, they followed that. And they dealt with it in a biblical way. But now Paul's on them for not restoring him, for not allowing him back. So on one side, they're like, ah, oh, whatever. But now on the other side, they're really serious, and, and they're like, like, like me sometimes, swinging this way and then swinging that way, right? Interesting, the Corinthian believers were extreme in how they dealt with things, right? Sometimes we're like that. We swing to one side, swing way back to the other side. Well, here's what Paul is saying here. It's time for compassion and restore the man back into fellowship. That's really the point here. It's time for compassion and restore the man back into fellowship. It's time. Enough. It's time. God is wanting you. But why is that important? Well, Paul actually gives us three reasons in the 
verses that we read and the rest of the verses in this section. It's time for compassion to restore the man back into fellowship. For why? Number one, it rescues him from discouragement. Number one, it rescues him from discouragement. Verse 7, Paul says, Paul says, hey guys, you ought ra- rather to forgive and comfort him. you got to forgive him. And then you you got to bring comfort to him. The word comfort in the Greek is parakaleo. It's, we've seen this word before. It means come alongside. It's the same word for the Holy Spirit. He comes alongside. It, it, it also means alleviate sorrow or distress. It also means give strength. Why is it important we forgive and comfort the guy? Well, lest, Paul says, he is swallowed up with too much sorrow. In other words, lest he gets overcome by discouragement, right? Feeling condemned, not feeling loved by God or his other Christian brothers. That's why Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm means make valid your love. So, number one, it's time for compassion to restore the man back into fellowship. Why? It rescues him from discouragement. Paul's saying love the sinner back into fellowship. Love the sinner back into fellowship. He needs to be healed here. Warren Wiersbe said forgiveness is the medicine that helps to heal broken hearts. So don't leave him out too long, guys. Especially if he's repented, hey, love the sinner back into fellowship. Next in verse 9, Paul writes, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. So it's time for compassion and restore the man back into fellowship. Why? Number two is it keeps you from disobedience. It keeps you from disobedience. It, it, what Paul Aspen wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, and this is what he's saying in verse 9, for to this end I, I wrote, was a test that I might put you to the test to see if they would obey yeah, and be obedient. The NLT says that they would fully comply with his instructions. They did that. They were obedient. Well, now this is the next test. Now this is the next in, in instruction. That is to fully, I would say, forgive. Fully forgive. To do what Christ asked, fully forgive. So, Paul saying, you need to be obedient here. Forgive him, comfort him, right? Fully forgive him. Because this is what Christ wants. And if you don't do it, I mean, if you do do it, it keeps you from disobedience. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You know, this made me think about how sometimes we, we say, yeah, I forgive you. But maybe it's like 70% forgiveness, yeah? You still hold on to that 30% because you like to take that out and beat them up again and put it back there. But I forgive that. You still take out those thoughts those, and that, that, that tape or that videotape, uh, uh, you know, that video of that, that incident. Oh, no, I forgive them. But here and there, you bring it up and you start playing it over again, beating them up again. And that's why you keep them out there. That's why you keep them out at arm's distance. Paul's saying, 
came. You got to bring them in. Hey, you got to restore them. Do what Christ asked. Fully forgive, like Christ has fully forgiven you. What if God didn't fully forgive us? Oh, we would be in a bad place, right? But God does forgive us. God, God does cast it out where he doesn't remember it anymore. He separates it from the east and the west, our transgressions, because he's forgiven us. Do what Christ asked. Fully forgive. How can he forgive and com- comfort? And you know why? Because it keeps you from disobedience. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Then in verse 10, Paul says, Now whom ye forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ. And then verse 11, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Number three here is that it stops Satan's evil devices. It's time for compassion and restore the man back into fellowship because number three, it stops Satan's devices. Now, it rescues him from discouragement. It keeps you from disobedience. But I'll tell you what, if you really forgive and comfort, if you fully forgive, you know it's going to stop Satan in his tracks. Now, in verse 10, Paul is like, know this. He says, if you forgive him, you know what, I also forgive him too. I'm in, I'm in agreement with you. We're in this together. I'm in, in agreement. It's not just uh, 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 with you, we're together, but it's also, you know, in the presence of Christ. As Jesus does, I also forgive him. Christ knows my heart. You forgive him. I forgive him. We're all forgiving him in unity. Why should we be in unity and forgiveness? You know why? Because he says here, lest Satan should take advantage here, for we know his devices. What is devices? His schemes. Paul's saying Satan's schemes work through any crack in the unity of our forgiveness. That's how Satan gets in. His scheme is to get in through unforgiveness. Through any crack in this unity. If there's a little bit of unforgiveness, oh, he's found a place for it. A way in. This month in June, 74 years ago, in 1944, Allied troops invaded the shores of Normandy in a great effort to take it from the Germans in World War II. With a great effort and great loss of life, the Allies, they established a beachhead at the day. And you know what? That beachhead was the beginning of the end of Germany's aggression. Nine months later, the war ended with their defeat. Now, that was good for America and their allies. But let me tell you, when it comes to Satan, unforgiveness gives him a beachhead where he can operate from, where he can come and attack. So you guys, be careful of Satan's devices. Be careful of his schemes. Be careful because he's there. He's, He's wanting to get in with this unforgiveness. Paul's saying, hey, it's time for compassion and restore the man back into fellowship. Why? Well, here it stops Satan's evil devices. Notice something here. 
in verse 11. He says, let Satan should take advantage, what, of us. Not just the man, but the whole church, Paul's talking about. Satan will look for every opportunity, any opportunity he can find to destroy the testimony of the church. And what is that testimony? The unity we have, the love we have, the oneness we have, the compassion we have for one another. The word here in verse 11, take advantage, means to cheat someone out of something. To cheat someone out of something that belongs to them. Well, Satan wants to what? Steal your blessing. That is his goal, right? As Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. That's Satan. That's what he wants to do when he comes into the church. So we've got to watch out. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So watch out, you guys. For it's by unforgiveness, bitterness, division that Satan steals unity, friendship, peace, joy, fellowship. You know what? This is how he brings down churches. This is how he brings down the body. This is how he brings you down. Don't let even a little unforgiveness in your heart become a beachhead for Satan. Because you know what? It's going to affect the whole church. Hopefully, it's not you. Hopefully, it's not me. That a little unforgiveness stays in your heart. And Satan's going to use that to bring disunity in the church. Hopefully, it's not you. But let me tell you, there's something he can't stop. What is that? Compassion. What is that? Have an eye of compassion. What is that? That love for the sinner. Love and forgiveness for the sinner. One mom took her turkey to a restaurant. Her six-year-old boy asked to say grace. Well, everyone bowed their heads in the family at the table. And the little boy said, God is good. He prayed, God is great. Thank you for the food. And I would even thank you more if mom gets us ice cream for dessert. And liberty and justice for all. Amen. Well, just right here, along with the laughter from other customers nearby, one woman remarked this. That's what's wrong with this country. Kids don't know how to pray. Asking God for ice cream, why I never. Hearing this, the boy burst into tears and asked the mom, Did I do it wrong? Is God mad at me? When the mom reassured him it was okay, just then an elderly man approached the table, winked at the boy and said, I happen to know that God thought that was a great prayer. Then in a whisper, sort of motioning to the lady, too bad she never asked God for ice cream. And then he said, a little ice cream is good for the soul sometimes. Well, after the meal, the mom did buy ice cream for the family. The boy stared at her for a moment and then picked up his Sunday without a word, walked over and placed it in front of that woman. With a big smile, he said to her, Here, this is for you. Ice cream 
is good for the soul sometimes. And my soul is good already. Yes, compassion is the key. Compassion is something Satan cannot stop. Love for the sinner. Those who have wronged you, Satan cannot stop that. You're good in his hands. Number three in our outline, love for the lost. Love for the lost. We are to have eyes of compassion and hold to a love for the church and hold to a love for the sinner. And now number three, love for the lost. And this is our last section here. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Stop right there. Now, Paul writes when he came to Troas, which is actually the area of modern-day Turkey for us, a door had opened up for him to uh, preach the gospel. It was an opportunity to share Jesus Christ. Yet in the midst of this incredible opportunity, Paul's spirit, he says in verse 13, I had no rest. Why is that? Why was he still unsettled? Well, because he said, I did not find Titus, my brother. So what did he do? He left that and went to Macedonia. Macedonia is like northern Greece area for us today. So he left Troas to Macedonia to see if he could find Titus over there. Because that was another place that, that, that Titus was to be and that Paul was to meet him. Now, Titus is another of Paul's, quote, disciples. Titus is actually a Greek, a Gentile who came to the Lord and saved, but Paul raised him up. And Titus is, is, is one of his, quote, guys like Timothy. And Titus was the one who had carried that severe letter, that letter we don't have, to the Corinthian church. So you can understand what's going on here. Paul couldn't wait to hear how the Corinthians had responded to this letter. He wanted to know the news. So when Titus, after he delivered the letter, was supposed to meet up Macedonia, or Troas wasn't there, he went to Macedonia to look for Titus. And that's why he was unsettled. Even with God moving in Troas, Paul was still still concerned for the spiritual well-being of the Corinthian believers. I love that. He still had that compassion. He still had that love for them. Now, later we will see that Paul did find Titus. We're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. uh, In verse 7, he wrote, Nevertheless, God who comforts those of downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Titus. And Titus had some great news here. Verse 8 in 2 Corinthians 7 says, And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation which we have, he was comforted in you, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. So they had repented. They had changed. They had obeyed. They had turned around. And that's why Paul's writing 2 Corinthians. That's why he's writing this letter. Well, next, look at verse 14. He says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 
So Paul now, verse 14, breaks out in praise. Why? Well, he's writing the Corinthians here, telling them, yeah, I, I went to look for, for Titus, but, but you know what happened? You know what happened. You know, he'll pick it up again, chapter 10, but I found him and he gave me the good news. And you know what? Then Paul said, now thanks be to God. Praise God, for in his faithful love, he has worked in your hearts. That he's worked in the hearts of the Corinthian believers. He's always like, thanks be to God. Now from here to chapter 7, Paul just focuses in on the incredible gospel of Jesus. On, on, on the thought that God, when he saves someone, he saves them. He's working in their life. He's raising them, right, their, them up. He's growing them. And so Paul, no, seeing what God has done and knowing, hey, the Corinthians did repent, he breaks out in, into praise for what God has done in saving them with the gospel of Jesus. And it is this gospel that has done this incredible work in the lives of the Corinthian believers for, he says, it is God who leads us in triumph in Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about the victory we have in Jesus. Now, when Paul writes here, leads us in triumph, it is a term used of the conquering general parading through the streets of Rome after victory of war. So he, with that Greek word there, he really brings in this picture of what they all know there when the Roman general comes in with this victory parade. Now, if you were there and you would see this parade, you would see the general first on a gold chariot, followed by his officers and his army. Then he would be followed by the Roman Senate and the state officials. Next in this parade would be the spoils of war, all the gold, all the, the, the treasures that they, they had uh, obtained, the, 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 the loot they had gotten. And then even there would be models of ships they got, uh, paintings of the cities that they conquered. And then after that would be POWs in chains paraded by captive princes and leaders and conquered soldiers there, POWs. And finally, at the end of the parade, you would have the Roman priests, and they would be burning their incense to their God. So Paul puts out this picture. He sees his believers as part of a triumphal parade right behind Jesus, our commander, our Lord, who conquered sin. And he says, thanks be to God who gave us that victory. Thanks be to God who gives that triumph in the lives of the Corinthian believers who conquered, who Jesus has conquered their sin and now they are victors also. It's like what Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Right? We do not fight for victory, but from victory. And Paul goes on and says that God uses believers now to diffuse the fragrance of his knowledge in every place, to diffuse or spread the fragrance of his knowledge. And what is that? The gospel of God's love. So think about this. It's like the particular incense that was in the parade that the priest would, would burn and, and how that was associated with victory, that smell. So the believer and his life is a fragrance to the world. 
the love of Jesus in the gospel. Paul says, saying this, believers are what the world associates with salvation. With a God in our life, it brings the aroma of Jesus, the aroma of his love. The Olympic athlete and missionary to China long ago, Eric Little, called this the fragrance of the God-enfolded love. I like that. The fragrance of the God-enfolded love. God has enfolded our lives. God is in us. Jesus is in us in salvation. That becomes this fragrance, that love that God has given us. Verse 15, Paul says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16, To one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. So we see a couple things here. Believers are to God now, to the Lord, the fragrance of Christ. Now, we're like sweet incense in the Old Testament temple. It's like when they offered up that incense to the Lord. And then secondly, believers are a fragrance to those being saved and to the perishing, which is those who are unsaved. Now, what does that mean? Well, to the unsaved, those who reject the gospel, you're this aroma of death leading to death. And think about it. It's like the POWs in this parade. The incense of victory was really a smell of defeat and death to them. But to the saved, you're this aroma of life leading to life. It's that the, you're this smell, aroma of victory over sin. And then you add the love of God in your life. So to the unsaved, it's a message of doom. To the saved, it's a message of hope. And you're this fragrance in that room. You, believers, and, and how we live and how we act and how we love, you're this fragrance. You know, I don't know about you, I guess being Japanese, I love daikon, you know, pickled daikon, yeah? Uh, but my wife hates the smell of it. If there's a jar in our fridge, she can still smell it if the door is closed. If I go and try and sneak a couple daikon, you know, all of a sudden I hear across the room, what's that smell? Oh, nothing. <laughs> Just the, no. <laughs> you see, to one, it's good. <laughs> to another, it's bad. Well, that's how the gospel is. If, you if you're, uh, you know, a believer, it's light. If you reject it, Jesus' condemnation, his message. It does not smell good. Well, then, interesting here at the end of verse 16, Paul adds this. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who can really be this kind of fragrance? This is a great and awesome responsibility. Who can really be this believer that would give off this type of aroma? Verse 17, the last verse. He says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. Okay, so Paul says, for we, that's like him, Timothy, Titus, all its ministers of Jesus, he's saying, we don't take this lightly. 
And what, we look at this, this as being a fragrance in this world uh, for Jesus. We don't take this lightly. We are not, he's saying, we are not like as so many do, peddling the word. Peddling here speaks of a con artist. Uh, back then they even had these traveling salesmen, right? Uh, uh, selling their elixirs and medicines, you know, and, and trying to make a buck. He says, we're not peddling the word of God. We're not seeking to, to gain money here. No, it's in sincerity. It's, it's as being sent by God from God. As we speak, we speak before the Lord in the sight of God. He's watching us. Paul here in verse 17, the idea is he's saying we are not like the false teachers who really don't care for the lost, who, 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 who just do it for money. That's what they care about. No, Paul says we do it out of compassion. We do it out of love for the lost. He says we're not like the false teachers. Paul described them in Philippians 3.19. He says, we try to bend this destruction whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame who set their mind on earthly things. He's like, no, that's not it. And that's not what believers are. Our last point for this morning is this. Love, the, love for the lost is the fragrance of believers. Paul's saying, we're the real deal here. We're not like these guys. Who... Who, who, can, who can really do this ultimate responsibility? Well, we're doing our best. We're doing it with our heart. We're doing in sincerity. We have love for the lost, and we understand that it is the fragrance of believers. Love for the lost is the fragrance of believers. A new missionary to China was attending a missionary language school. On the first day of class, the teacher entered the room, and without a without saying a word, walked down every row of the students. Finally, still without saying a word, she walked out of the room, and then she came back into the room. She asked the class, did you notice anything special about me? Nobody could think of anything in particular, but one student finally raised her hand and said, I noticed that you had on a very lovely perfume. The class chuckled. But the teacher said, that was exactly the point. You see, it will be a long time before any of you will be able to speak Chinese well enough to share the gospel with anyone in China. But even before you are able to do that, you can minister the sweet fragrance of Christ to these people by the quality of your life. It is your lifestyle, she said, lived out among the Chinese people. They will minister Christ that will minister Christ to them long before you are able to say one word to them about personal faith in Jesus. I love that. Certainly, the believer's fragrance is smelled through our lifestyles. But let me say today in the context of what we're looking at, it is by our lifestyle of love. It is by our compassion that we so, the question really today, what do you smell like? Right? Right? What do you smell like today? You know what I mean. What kind of fragrance do you admit? 
some put it this way, is it a stench or a savior? It is a, is it a funk that is foul or a fragrance that is fine? Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples. How's that? If you have love for one another, that's the fragrance of love. That's the fragrance of compassion. Let me ask you this. Because of your compassion, do people think, you know what, I like being around that person. Or maybe they smell something different and they say, you know what, I'd rather stay away from that person. I don't want to be around that. How do you carry yourself in this world? Is it an aroma of judgmental criticalness, putting down? Or is it caring? Is it loving? Is it compassionate? When the world listens in on your conversation, what kind of smell will they have? Do we only put it on? Like when we're around people or you know someone's missing you? Or are you sincere like Paul is saying? Are you real? And I'll tell you, what really speaks the loudest is being compassionate even to those who have failed you, who have wronged you. Sometimes the, 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 the outfit, stand on that principle, that standard we hold, yet without compassion. Remember to keep that balance. G. Campbell Morgan said, Love never slights holiness, but holiness never slays love. Where are you today? Did you lose compassion somewhere along the way? Something I came across, I'll close with this. This writer said, reporters have come up with a new term to describe the lack of reaction to disaster. They call it compassion fatigue. Interesting. Compassion fatigue. We are constantly inundated with stories of human distress, famine, genocide, and earthquakes. Some say that since we cannot help them all, we sometimes tune out such news. They go on, they went on to write, we can see how modern news and reporting does overwhelm us with stories of disasters and we do often help feel helpless to assist even when we'd like to. But then they write, thankfully, our God never has compassion fatigue. He is pained by all the suffering of those made in his image. He is gracious and forgiving to those who disappoint him. He is, as the Bible says, full of compassion and his mercy endures have compassion fatigue? Maybe you've been through so much. Maybe you've been hurt so much. That's your compassion fatigue. Maybe it's this continual thing that that you see and all, and you're like, oh, I I don't want this anymore. Understand and know that God never did and never will have compassion fatigue. Well, as we close up here, let's do what Paul asked here. Love the church, love the sinner, and love the Let's seek the eyes of compassion. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, let's all stand together and let's all pray. Lord, as we come to you right now and as we stand before you, God, we stand.
ignored. Nature basically. You see it. You're into it then. You cannot hide nothing from me. And in a sense, we stand naked and ashamed before you, God, because you know our failures, God. You know how we sinned before you this week. You know how maybe we went too far, Lord, on one end, or we went too far on the other end. We know, God, that you want us balanced in the middle. So, God, help us today to have compassion, even in the midst, Lord, of standing for principle. Help us, Lord, maybe to give up a little here when you want us to. Help us to stand our ground when we need to and not give in to our feelings. So, Lord, either way, let this be a godly compassion. It's, it's how you are to us, Lord. You are holy, you are righteous, you are just, and you deal with us in a way that we need to be dealt with. But at the same time, every day you give us grace. And your compassion fails not, God. Your mercies are new every morning. God, your mercy endures forever. Lord, may you take, God, what you've given us. Fill us with it. Empower us with it. And help us to give it out. And Lord, when we look at one another, let us not look through our own eyes, Lord, whether they are judgmental, critical, always putting down, whether we are, we are too soft and are, are, are too allowing things that shouldn't be there. So, Lord, give us your eyes to evaluate God's compassion. Help us today. In Jesus' name, amen.